Hey folks, Jeff Salzman here and welcome to The Daily Evolver. Today, I am joined once again by Dr. Keith Witt for another episode of The Shrink and the Pundit. Hey, Dr. Keith. Hey, Jeff. How you doing? I'm good. How you doing? I am doing great. Always good to talk with you. Likewise. Um, yeah, you're um, really be having uh, quite a presence uh, on Integral Life now. You're doing a regular thing, right? Yeah, every, every uh, month. You're, you're, you're being a shrink? <laughs> Live with it's, Dr. Keith. Is that right? It's, and there's one tomorrow. Yeah, there's one tomorrow. We're doing one tomorrow on uh, the two commitments in relationship. Cool. Well, people will be listening to this later, except for the live people. So what is it? Once a month and it's just on Integral Life and you can go look and, and join in and you, you take questions. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's, I, it's popular. I love it. And I love the interactive part of it. Yeah. You know, it gives, gives a, you know, we're, Integral is a diverse community all over the world. And so, you know, and it gives us a chance when people can call in and talk to you or call in and talk to me on one of these things. It gives us a chance to connect each, each other. Like, like what's happening in the European conference right now. Yeah. Yeah. And that's cool. <laughs> All right. Well, so let's turn to our topic today. Yes. And I'm excited about this topic because it's one that we don't talk about a lot. It's sort of this redhead stepchild of the, you know, aqua model. Mm -hmm. And we're talking about types. And yes. the aqua model, you know, just for people who are not that are kind of new to this, is uh, the model that Ken Wilber has come up with uh, that sort of explains what it is to be human. And it's made up of these five dimensions, quadrants, levels, lines, states, and types. We won't get into all of it. But types is, you know, it's something that we just know intuitively about each other, you know, and, and, and we talk in terms of somebody who's an introvert versus an extrovert or somebody who's grounded and just likes to work on things and make things happen that are like real versus people who are kind of spacey and like to think about ideas and, you know, and, and then the people who are, uh, you know, care about people's feelings and people who are not so concerned about feelings, but really want results. People who want to nail things down, people who want to hang loose. And, you know, here we all are. And, uh, and we sort of come out that way. And we show up that way. And your thesis and your thinking on this, it's, well, first of all, it's a little bit new, right? You said you were just we were talking before we, we got on here that this is something you've been thinking about, uh, you know, in, in, in a new way. So maybe we just start there. Yeah. I, um, I've been thinking about it in a new way because um, a lot because of the work that I've done recently in trauma and intimacy. Um, and so the people who develop typology systems are, uh, you, you know, I, I, if you've ever developed a typology system, so different people do. I mean, I, I developed a test once, you know, you validate it and, and you, you get all excited when your, when your, your um, typology system actually reflects people being different systemically, that their personalities are different. The Myers-Briggs people were super excited that, that they could reliably test people's personality, you know, so they'd have the same measure. And the Enneotype, people who do the Enneotype, we love the Enneotype. We love identifying our Enneotype and, and, and so on. Um, and they get invested and they say, well, if you're a type, you're kind of stuck being that type. Um, and that's been the accepted wisdom around personality for 100 years. Um, Mostly because what people have observed is that that your personality uh, is is observable very 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 early um, in infancy, and then you can see a progression. And so there's this sense of okay, people's personality develops, but there was this unconscious bias towards it happens individually. It's like this person personality growing, not recognizing that the personality grows in an elaborate. Um, set of interconnected relationships starting from before conception. And that these interrelationships are not neutral interrelationships. There are better ones and there are worse ones. And what that turns into is it affects our type as we grow. And at a particular point, um, we're kind of stuck with who we are unless we decide to change. Um, 
And, you know, the, the, the radical uh, approach to individuality is, okay, I'm totally responsible for who I am. And if I have a problem, I'm responsible for it. And if I have a problem in the social framework, then I should take care of it. And it's my issue. And, it's, and all that stuff is true from the perspective of human beings are way too powerful to change unless somebody decides they want to change and grow. And also it's true that we don't really change certain aspects of who we are. We can grow them to be progressively more healthy. You know, right. you're in any type five, I'm in any type six. I can get to be a healthier and healthier and healthier in any type six, but you know, I'm never going to be an eight. I'm right. just not going to be an eight. I'm not attracted to all the things that eights are attracted to. And you know, you're not going to be a three, you know, right. you're just not going to do it. Okay? Right. But, but I can be an ever healthier five. Yes, you and can. You, and, and then there are, you know, the, the idea of the any type that, that, you know, a healthy five grows into an eight and the yeah. healthy six grows into a... I mean, healthy there's six, a next. There's a yeah, next. healthy six grows in, in in integration. The six goes to nine. Under okay. stress, the six goes to uh, three. Yeah, and under stress, I go to seven. And, yes, you do. And, you know, and this is a little inside baseball for people, but this is the enneagram, <laughs> and the enneagram is actually one of the uh, sort of you know popular. Yeah. Uh, typologies that you find in the integral world. It has a you know rich history and it it has sort of a spiritual quality to it. And absolutely, um, and that's one of the things that you know. If if we, I, I I sort of got stuck on you were talking about that this happens before conception. Yeah, and I have a feeling you're going to talk about because of the state of your parents. Yes, but I also want to see if you're talking about just the karma that we bring in from God knows where. Well, I, first of all, I think that that is well said. We bring in karma from God knows where. I don't know where because, you know, I'm not God other than to the extent that all of us are God, okay? But something else comes in, and, you know, and, and that's fine. And also, as soon as, and progressively, as soon as I have self-awareness, I'm responsible for all that stuff. You know, we are responsible for everything we experience and do. And, you know, development is not fair. You know, some people are brought in with more skills and less skills. Some people are brought into a more comfortable environment and a less comfortable environment. If you're in a, if you're in a, a low socioeconomic, if you're a child in a low socioeconomic um, uh, family, you're four times more likely to be prescribed antipsychotics than a child in a middle class family. Okay, well. That's not fair, but that's right. just the way it is. Um, and so we have to deal with the fact that th there's, there's those elements. There's the elements of our parents' health and their psychology when they conceive us. There's the, the, the psychological and physiological environment of the mother. There's birth and the first year, the second year, the third year, which, which are just packed with critical periods. Critical period is a period where the, the organism, the child, needs certain kinds of development, certain kinds of input from the outside that develop certain kinds of capacity. And if you miss that period, you don't adequately develop those capacities without great effort. Okay. This is why feral children who didn't learn language because they were being raised by wolves, and there's actually a few kids that had that happen in India, they could never adequately develop language, but they did develop some language later on. And part of the, the, so the new thing that I have about this is that, and it's a, it's a cultural, this is a, a wicked problem that I wanted to discuss. Not that I have any solutions to it, but it's a wicked problem. We know now what optimizes that developmental arc for that infant from before birth to adulthood. I mean, it's not, it's not theory anymore. It is, we know what's better or worse for infants. We know what's and, better. And or what are the two or three things that, you know, really we want to put on the table that make all the difference? Okay, so here's, here's one. You want a child to have a secure attachment with a primary caregiver, like a mother. About a half kids have that. And you want the kid to grow up in a secure environment where there's cultural support and there, there's enough food, there's enough shelter, there's enough security, and there's a re, re, uh, reduced amount of anxiety. So you want a kid growing up with, with parents who are functional and coherent and with enough of that stuff and given the opportunities to grow and, and, and develop and given the stimulation at the appropriate developmental times. We want that. 
That's a big deal. We do not want that child to have abuse and neglect. Okay? We don't want that. And generally, that is pawned off to somebody else. People do not take responsibility for protecting infants and children from being abused and neglected. And this severely compromises their personalities and their type of person. You know, you and, you and Warren Farrell had this great talk. Boy, did I have fun listening. I like him and I like his book. And he talked about 85% of guys in prison didn't grow up with a dad. Okay, let me just stop you here. It, Warren Farrell, I interviewed last week, uh, he wrote a book called The Boy Crisis. Mm-hmm. And it's about how boys are falling behind in, uh, I don't know, 60 measures of yeah. well-being relative to girls. And, you know, there's a systemic problem here. And that, you know, the sort of thesis is that, um, and it, it actually was Gail Sheehy wrote it on as one of the, the blurbs on the book, and I love Gail Sheehy, is that, you know, she's proud of what happened with the women's movement in terms of uh, uh, expanding options for women. But the same thing didn't happen for boys. Yeah. And boys are stuck in this sort of, you know, you know, sort of arrested development in terms of evolution and, 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 and sort of a meaninglessness that is turning pernicious in ways that we are now just beginning to realize. So yeah. I just want to put that in the table. And I'm glad you like that. Loved and it. So, um, so that's what you're talking about. Yes. Sort of. Sort of. Well, yeah. if, you, if you look at the, the people who are incarcerated, 50% of them were in foster homes. Um, 90% of them were addicted to something when they were uh, arrested, and 80, 80 to 90% of them were actually loaded on something when they were committing their crime. Um, what predisposes people to have those kinds of problems like addiction, like lo- loss of control? Um, childhood abuse and neglect, that's what causes it. And what, what causes childhood abuse and neglect? You don't have adequate support for parents and for children. And th- I think one of the things about the boy crisis is that the vast differences between boys who had a father in their life and boys who didn't. Well, that's, that, that actually is the one thing, if you, the, Warren Farrell said, if I had to boil it down to one thing, it's, did they have a father or didn't they? Did they have a father? If, think about it. If you had a father in your life, there are two people who are biologically, psychologically invested in you. And what that means is that they're answerable to each other. Most of us act better when we're feeling like we're being observed. And if there's another caregiver around, we're more likely to be, the, 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 to be self-regulatory. Single teenage mothers, 85% of their kids are, are evaluated as being overly aggressive by the age of two. That's a cultural pathology with those teenage mothers. Why? There's not a guy around, one thing. And two, they're all by themselves and nobody is really supporting them. Um, one, of, one, of the, one of the most infuriating things about the pro-life movement that, that basically coerces pregnant girls into having babies is after four or five months, they cut them loose. They, we, don't want to protect, we don't want to take care of them with small babies. Well, thanks a lot. Um, yeah. Well, let, let's just look at it developmentally. I mean, okay. you, you talk about the, 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 you know, the solution to the problem is more support for, the, for mothers and you know, for kids. Families and, and kids, uh, yeah. Yes. And I, I agree with that. And that's a sort of a developmental move forward. The, the cr- conservative critique of that is actually, no, the, the, the solution is to go back to the pre-sexual revolution where parents stay together and, you know, enough of all of this experimentation and all of your crazy ideas, you liberals, and, uh, you know, sit up straight and do, do your job and be responsible. Yeah, well, you know, as, a, as somebody who's done therapy for 45 years, um, those, I got to say, you know, those kinds of pronouncements just fucking drive me crazy because I've worked with those people. I've worked with people in their 60s who come in and the guy doesn't know where his wife's clitoris is. Okay, well, you know, so much for, so much for you know, the good old days when it comes to, you know, people knowing about how to love each other. When I was a kid, it was considered good parenting to humiliate children. It was the Marine model. You know, don't have them feel too good about themselves. You know, my coaches would all tell us we were, you know, we were worthless and all this other stuff. 
Well, research has shown that the number one thing that creates psychopathology, more than sexual abuse or physical abuse, is emotional abuse of children, telling them that they're worthless or you can't stand them or they're, you know, that kind of stuff. That creates more psychopathology than anything. Um, how come we as a culture haven't looked at all the problems that we have as a result of this and say the solution to these problems is starting with this generation. If we, can, if we could not have these children be abused and neglected, we would have hundreds of billions of dollars of added revenue from taxes, hundreds of billions of dollars less spent on health care, and we'd have, we'd have half the psychopathology and half the addiction that we have today. These are staggering effects. All have been validated. Oh, there's this great woman, Carlin uh, Lyons-Ruth, on the East Coast. And so she, uh, she got a bunch of teenage girls who had their kids. You know, these kids that by two years old are all, are all high, are, uh, diagnosed aggressive. She had a nurse who knew about development visit these girls and their babies once a week. That's all they did. They showed up for an hour or two, taught them how to play with their baby, you know, listened to them, changed the baby, you know, went back and forth, how to ask them how it was going, talked to the other people. All right, six months later, half those kids um, didn't have symptoms anymore. Okay, six months. This is the least expensive intervention that can be done with, with yep. infants that anybody's discovered that has the most robust effect. Mm -hmm. Now, here's the weird thing about this. There have been at least three of those programs have been started, and they go for a little while, and then they're defunded. How does that happen? Well, it, it happened in the same way that we're seeing now the Trump administration going back to abstinence-based sex education. Somebody gets in charge, and they go, we don't want to be a nanny state. We're not going to give money to these teenage girls. They shouldn't be getting pregnant. Screw them. We'll end this program. Okay, well. That stuff like that is, is really hard for me because everybody that I see, basically their issues come from some aspect of childhood trauma or neglect or adolescent trauma mm -hmm. and neglect. I mean, people well, it's just, I mean, just as you, you, you talk about this, just and even this program you're talking about, just the power of being seen. Yeah. You know, just the power of just being seen for who you are and contacted by another human being in a very basic way, you know, a parent, a father, a mother. And, you know, it, 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 Warren Farrell talked about, you know, there are situations where the father isn't an option. That's right. And there are ways of compensating for that. But we have to know what we're dealing with and what's needed. And, um, you know, and that's how we sort of work our way forward here. And this reminds me of the one thing he said that I disagree with, okay? And, and, and this is what it was. He said, well, we should have teenage boys babysitting more so that they get used to working with kids and know about kids and infants and so on, which I understand. I babysit my cousins when I was a kid. But I've had too many stories of kids being molested by uh, teenagers. And so I would, I would never have a boy, a teenage boy, uh, uh, babysit my children. Why? I couldn't be sure of what's going on with him um, sexually because right. we are taught to keep that invisible. Right. Now, and that, and that is, that drives the, the, the these male advocates crazy. Mm -hmm. The idea that all boys are tarred with that and that, that boys are, it's just like the way gays were seen. For, That's right. It still are actually by a lot of people. You don't want to leave your kids alone with them. Yeah. Uh, now, and, you know. Now, now, now the answer. But to yet that, I see the intelligence of it too. And the answer isn't to say, okay, boys can never be childcare workers. No. The answer is to make everybody's sexuality more visible. The answer to that is to have the reality of childhood neglect and abuse more visible and more Absolutely. part of the daily yes. conversation. Because once it's visible and part of the daily conversation and everybody talks about it, they're no more likely to sexually abuse your kids than they are to take a stick and hit your kids with a stick. 
Right. Why? You know, hitting people with sticks is, a, is something that's visible and that we don't let anybody do and that people don't do and no babysitters do. And that's just all there is to it. But they, they used to. Yeah, they used you know, to. it's so funny. I had my reunion with my cousins and we were talking about actually, let me just extend the story a little bit. So sure, I have my, sure. my trainer who I work with three mornings a week and he's great and he's young and he's got this about to turn four-year-old and this little girl is very willful and you know they spend a lot of their time just uh, trying to get her calmed down so they can talk to her and move and they're all doing all the right stuff they're really smart parents they're very good parents a lot of time a lot of frustration and so i just comparing that to my cousin's reunion and they're all in their 60s like me and we're talking about that when we were, you know, in the backseat whining, our mother would reach back and backhand us. Yeah. You know, and uh, and we all laugh about that. We all loved our mothers and fathers and, you know, and some were worse than others and, you know, whatever. But boy, what a difference. And, yeah. and, 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 and if, if my trainer or his wife were to do something like that and somebody were to see that, they would call the cops. That's right. And so, so, you know, I do want to mark that as let's let's note the progress, Keith. Absolutely. This conversation is a mark of progress. There was a guy, I forget his name, Frenzy, I think, in the 30s, who wrote this article. And, you know, this is a psychologist in the 30s writing an article. He said, there's a problem inherent in development. Children are love machines. Adults are love and sex machines. And he said, when you combine those, you know, adults that don't have adequate self-regulation will seek sexual regulation out of those loving relationships. You know, he was trying to draw attention to the problem. And this is in the 30s. In the 30s. Wow, cool. Interesting. He was excluded, excommunicated from the psychoanalytic community and stayed in disgrace the rest of his life. In a psychiatric textbook in the 80s or 70s, They said incest happened in one in a million cases, and it wasn't that bad. Okay, everybody's everybody's a therapist is is fond of quoting this statistic because they go, yeah, I guess I must have had all the incest victims in America come through my office. No, no, incest was a feature of of, pre-modern societies. My goodness, it's what you did. It was except that there actually are genetic inhibitions around having sex in your family. Children. Yeah, but fair enough. But there was a hell of a lot of incest happening, and that's still true. That's true in terms of the pre-modern countries today. That's true in that's terms true. of world statistics. That's absolutely true, and it's it's a problem. Uh, often that happens in sexually repressive cultures, which adds insult to injury to development. Which brings us back to our type conversation. Okay? Yes. Yes, where do the types go? Well, the, the types are, types, types develop as we develop. And there's certain aspects of our typology that we can change. And there's certain aspects that we can't change. Um, and, and there are certain aspects that are a result of different kinds of traumas? Yes. And neglect? Yes. Okay. And the way that those are resolved generally is in creating... Um, open intersubjectivity where everything can be discussed within the context of cultures where everybody is safe and secure. Okay, okay. That's, that's what heals human beings and causes them to grow to be the healthy version of their type. Oh, God bless you. I mean, how simple is that? Yeah. Yes. It's so good. So anyway, so, all right. So let me look at myself here. So just yeah, using the Enneagram. So I'm, I'm yeah. sort of centered around a five. Uh-huh. I know that to the degree that I really flourish and become the Jeff that I can be, I'm going to be more towards an eight, which yeah. is which is leadership and, you know, getting people to, to roused and all that good stuff. As a five, I'm a thinker, I'm a, an analyzer and that sort of thing. When I'm unhealthy, I'm a seven, I'm a dysfunctional seven, I'm jittery, I'm, I'm, I'm with the remote, I'm, I, I can't settle down, I'm, I'm thinking of this, I'm trying to entertain myself, I'm whatever, I, I, I can't focus. And so um, how I'm uh, raised, how, you know, how, how I'm nurtured and seen will sort of get me off to the higher set point, maybe. Yes. Absolutely. 
And we see that in some of the teenagers and young people that have had this over the last 20 or 30 years, because a lot of this data has been available. And you and I have been commenting on this for, for years. They're extraordinary. They're way farther along than we were. Why? Because they do have a higher set point. Now, what that means, practically speaking, is that people are in interpersonal relationships where they can be themselves and talk about anything. And their basic nature is, is honored while they're getting the boundaries that they need to be pro-social. Um, now, one of the huge... Keith, say that again. The, 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 they're getting the boundaries to be pro-social. Yeah. Okay, so, the, so let me explain that. Okay. Um, there is a bias. There's a ch- this is a child-centric culture, particularly in the middle class in America these days. Now, the, there's, a, there's, there's several problems with being a child-centric culture. Okay, uh, one problem being a child-centric culture is that parents tend to attend to kids and they tend to sacrifice self-care and care to the relationship to attend to kids. Okay, that's a problem because what kids need more than anything else is a couple of parents who are functional loving each other. I mean, that's, that's basically, if you've got a couple of parents who are functional loving each other, um, you're more likely to be set up. Um, secondly, it's good that kids are attended to in terms of what their nature is. But secondly, particularly boys, Push against boundaries. Some kids, by nature, push harder against boundaries. Boys tend to more than girls. Some types do that. that, that know, some a, types a, do that's that. a typology right there. It's, there's a masculine and feminine breakdown and, 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 and another typology. Um, they need particular kinds of boundaries when they do that. The boundary is you are not allowed to behave in, an, in, a, in a non-pro-social fashion. And then after you calm down, we'll have a little talk about it that will validate your feeling but not validate the behavior. And a little bit of social learning will take place. If that doesn't happen, then it tends to amplify self-indulgence and narcissism in the kids. But there's a, there's a lot more other variables. Fathers. If fathers do rough and tumble play with their sons, and, and they're authoritative, not authoritarian, which means they don't let anybody get hurt. Those kids have better social skills and are more self-regulatory later on in life and have better attention skills. Okay, so if a father isn't around to do that, that little boy is going to have less attention skills. And 10% of little boys are diagnosed ADD, and a lot of them are given speed. Now, I have a problem with that. One of the problems with it is I don't like giving amphetamines to eight-year-olds. I mean, come on. And secondly, those drugs are anti-play drugs. They, they inhibit play. Children need to play to develop. That is the crucible through which they discover the world and each other. And I don't want to be giving kids antipsychotic drugs, which inhibit play and cause obesity, or, or I don't want to give them amphetamine, which inhibits play, because now they're not engaging in the kinds of behaviors that they need to engage in. And these are important social behaviors to optimally develop as virtuous types of whoever they are. And, and, and going back to type again for this, children that are sexually abused, for instance, um, are affected physiologically and psychologically. Physiologically, it infects their development. Girls that are sexually abused tend to have their periods a year and a half earlier and have three to five times as many sex hormones as girls that weren't sexually abused. Now, I don't know if anybody listening can remember when they were 13 or 14. Well, my sex hormones when I was 13 or 14 were driving me crazy. And the idea of having three to five times more of them, you know, makes me want to just just shoot me, you know? (laughs) So... And these girls, because they're weird, they don't have friends that help initiate them into, into pre-adolescence. It predisposes them to be exploited. You know, girls that have been neglected or abused are seven times more likely to be raped. One of the problems they're having when they get girls out of sex trafficking is these girls have only had a sense of validation for being uh, beautiful and sexual. And now they need to have an awful lot of relationship and support and so on to develop a self that has... Um a sense of purpose beyond that. Mm. And it's our responsibility as a culture to provide that for everybody. It, it, if we do that, everything changes for the better. And we've seen this happen in small enclaves, and we've seen it happen in the Northern European countries, which aren't perfect, but have done a lot of this stuff. 
And then, so, so when I see things like Trump wanting to go back to abstinence-based sex education, which is a disaster, instead of going with progressive pro-sexual sex education, which is great for kids, it, it, this is how our type, our type is affected by our interactions. And it's very, very fluid. For instance, being likable and not likable. These are definable characteristics that can be taught to children and, and that can change, Okay. It, but it only can change if we're paying attention to it and we see it and we help them and we don't right. hurt them. Right. Can we? Yeah. I, I, don't, I don't know if you saw Bill Maher the other night, but he had Jordan Peterson on. Oh, yeah. Our favorite, our, our current favorite. Yes. Yeah, public intellectual. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and uh, so he was, they, they, he was doing the interview and Jordan Peterson, of course, wrote this book, The 12 Rules for Life. And one of the ones, that, and the one that Bill Maher wanted to talk about was, don't let your children do anything that makes you dislike them. Wow, that's interesting. And, and I like that. And, and Bill Maher liked that really a lot. They, so they actually talked a lot about that. And it's, it's what you're saying about likability. Uh, and, 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 you know, so, so what I'm getting from this in, in general, Keith, is that First of all, all of this matters, and we really, as a culture, want to take this seriously. Yeah. And there's lots of ways to do it, but there's, you know, some tried true ways of, you know, the two parents who are there and whatever. But that culture has a responsibility to step in when that's not working. And, um, and in so doing, uh, you know, heals a lot of the trauma that really comes home to roost in, you know, I mean, let me count the ways. And let's go back to Jordan Peterson. Okay. So, so yeah, like I said, he's everybody's, uh, you know, green basher, you know, pluralist basher. But okay, we don't want kids to do stuff that causes us to not like them. All right. What if I've been raised in an anti-sexual environment and my kid acts in a sexual fashion? That makes me not like him. Okay, so I say stop doing that. You know, basically denying his sexuality. Okay, well, what happens then? It goes inward. And now instead of getting support to develop a healthy sexuality, that kid is kind of left on his own or with whatever friends he can, uh, he can join right. with. Yeah. Now, the only way to deal with that is to have a cultural understanding that we want to raise our kids in a pro-sexual fashion, you know, a pro-healthy sexual fashion. That's how can we do that? Well, we can have the sex education not be abstinence-based, which is a failure, and be a pro-sexual understanding information relationship-based, which has proved to be successful in Denmark, in Holland, and, and other places. And, and then now we have parents that are primed when the kid does something they don't like. It's actually something that needs a boundary, like hitting another you kid. You are the most libertine monogamous guy. I, I have ever met in my life. Yeah. yeah, I think monogamy kind of protected me from a series of sexual disasters. <laughs> that would happen. But you're I, right. I mean, pro. I love this idea of prosexual. Yeah, it, it's like prosexual, and you know, then you know, with the baseline of we like sex, we know kids are sexual. We want everybody to be thinking appropriate with it how are we appropriate with it what's you know what's the what are the moves at various stages and various ages well and also the idea that addressing childhood sexual trauma look 28 percent of girls 16 percent of boys are molested by somebody five years older than them i mean that's 20 percent of the population okay the idea of addressing that by creating a more pro-sexual culture is going to drive conservatives crazy. That's counterintuitive, Keith. It's counterintuitive to, to, to Western, you know, Christianity is not a pro-sexual religion thinking, but that's exactly what the answer is. It's okay? true. That's, that's exactly what the answer is. And so that's the way that we protect them from being molested, where a pro-sexual pro culture talks about sex, sex is more visible. Sex is more visible than the main thing that supports sexual abuse, which is keeping it invisible. That begins to degrade and kids are better protected. Right on. Um, the same is true with emotional um, abuse. Like I said, emotional abuse is, is, is omnipresent and it causes most of the problems. Yeah. 
you know, if you, there are people in mental hospitals, you talk to people who run mental hospitals, they go crazy over this kind of stuff. Why? Over 50% of the people in mental hospitals had, had childhood trauma uh, uh, experiences, okay? They call it, uh, you know, what do they call it? Developmental trauma disorder is, is the diagnosis that the APA refuses to put into the diagnostic manual. Which is another. What, what is it again? What's it? What's the Develop, It's deve- developmental trauma disorder. Okay. And with kids who've had multiple episodes of neglect and trauma tend to develop a lot of problems, behavioral problems, substance abuse problems, sexual problems, you name it, acting out problems. They get all these diagnoses, but the bottom line is it came from developmental trauma, and the APA will not put that diagnosis in the manual. Why? Hmm. It kind of legitimatizes the fact that most of our problems are caused by kids not being treated well developmentally. It's a cultural thing. It's not like psychopathology happens, you know, like, you know, you're growing a tumor. You know, it comes out of a system. And, if, and as long as the system stays the way it is, it's just going to keep pumping out the same amount of problems in psychopathology and obesity and all the other kinds of things that we talk about. And we can't affect that system only working with infants. Infants are symbiotic in relationships. We need to affect those relationships. And those relationships, like with mothers, are symbiotic in relationships with fathers and families. We have to affect those. That's the only way that we can adequately address. It's a wicked problem. We can adequately address these things and help kids grow to be the healthiest version of whatever type of kid they are, which is what we want. That is what we want. Is what yeah. yeah, yeah, well, you know, I mean, to, to, to look at it through the whole developmental spiral, uh, we have over time, I mean, we, you, you and I have seen this in our own life, how children are more seen, yeah, more they are, cared for, uh, than ever in a certain way. But there was this sort of atomization that happens in modernity where people move away from the extended family and there they are, they're stuck in an apartment and, they're, and there's, there's nobody and then it, it feeds on itself. And so we see that as sort of a developmental hiccup, uh, more than that probably. And, and then we, you know, we move into, and, and I think we have a bifurcated society. David Brooks talks a lot about this. He does. The way kids are being coddled and treated and, you know, nurtured in the middle and upper classes is a whole other ball game than the way they are in the lower classes. And there's problems. Uh, You know, there's six times more depression now than there was when we were kids. Depressed mothers tend to produce kids that feel neglected. Okay. Yeah. If we want those kids to not have the subjective experience of neglect, we got to help those women who are depressed. Yeah. Social isolation, as I've said millions of times, is the biggest health risk in the United States. You have said that. That's a good point. Yes, indeed. And so, yeah, we still have those vestiges from modernity and post-modernity that need to be addressed more systemically. And, you know, people don't have a lot of room to create community when they're worried about whether they're going to have food or whether they're going to um, be able to make their rent payment. And similarly, upper-class kids have just as many problems as lower-class kids, interestingly, but they're different kinds of problems. Um, really? How so? What, how would you see the difference there? Well, what the research says is that the upper-class kids will have more, as the same level of psychological and behavioral problems as lower-class kids, but the lower-class kids' problems have to do more with survival. You know, getting caught for weapons, that kind of stuff. The upper-class kids will get busted for shoplifting or for, um, um, you know... Uh, drugs. Drugs. Drinking. Um, drinking, that kind of stuff. And there's a, a real critical time in upper-class society in America, around 12 or 13, where those kids are in hyper-competitive environments, those schools. The kids that do well in those schools are fine. The kids that don't do well begin to feel like failures and start giving up. And that's why there's a disproportionate amount of suicide in some of the most elite high schools in this country. Wow. And when I have upper-class clients with, luckily, when I, have, when I get them, when they have babies or little kids, I start preparing them for that and saying, what we want your kids to be are outliers of that culture. We want them to be successful, but not so driven that they, that they develop anorexia. We want them to feel good about themselves, but we don't want, you know, that kind of stuff. And 
because you have a lot of resources, part of your issue is to teach your kid about how to handle resources. Um, you know, like when my kids went to college, I told both of them, I said, okay, each one of you is going to have to come up with $6,000 a year for college. And they said, well, how am I supposed to do that? I go, well, there's a lot of ways. You get a job, you can borrow money. And well, how do I do that? Well, we'll help you, but you got to come up with that $6,000. So after college, they both had the subjective experience of working their way or borrowing their way through college. Now, they didn't know that I was kicking in an extra 25000 a piece every year. They felt, you know, they had that autonomy and they had enough anxiety so that they both were, were pretty good about managing their money. Okay. I didn't do that because I wanted their $6,000. I did that because as a parent and, you know, they, I didn't want them to feel entitled to their experience. I wanted them to have to have the subjective experience of worrying about it a little bit, working about it. So that would stimulate them at a critical period, which 18, 19 and 20 is a critical neurological period so that they could develop more of a sense of self-responsibility in the world. Okay. Now, the data about all this stuff is available, and each time you do one of these things right, your kid becomes a healthier type of whoever they are. Mm-hmm. Okay? Our responsibilities help everybody be the healthiest type of who they are, both with our family and with everybody else. And you're really right about social disintegration. And so a lot of times when people are having babies, I always tell them, you got to find other families with people you like that have kids. and and And... Here's another example. Okay, kids need to play with other kids to have healthy development. Parents need to participate. Parents, when kids are two years old, you, gotta, you need to take them around to other kids. And three, have play dates, but you need to be right there resolving issues. At, by five, kids start choosing their own friends, and parents are about 12 steps away, and they only intervene if there's a problem. At 13 or 14, you have a relationship with kids where you're, you've told them that they can talk about anything, and they have. So they have their social experiences and then come back and process them with you. If, if you try to have the same attitude at 14 that you should have at three, your kids develop a lot of problems. Or if you have the attitude that you should have at 14 at three, those kids don't get the right kind of input from parents. So these helicopter parents really are not getting the data that they need to optimize their child's development because they have these presupposed notions and they're all taught that they're supposed to be great parents as soon as their baby's born. Nobody's a great parent when your baby's born, but there's a lot of data about being a great parent if you're willing to receive it and grow as a parent. Now, culturally, this isn't a standard yet, that a superior parent is someone who does their best to, to protect and love their, and cherish their child. How about the rest of us, too, Keith? I mean, I, I think of our listeners here, and you know, some of them are active parents right now, but a whole lot of them are you know, grandparents or they know kids, they interact with kids. You know, I, I'm getting you know, just this sense of, um, I really want to just see a kid. You know, when, when I'm with a kid, I want to see who they are, uh-huh. uh, you know, uh, and I don't know, it's, it's, what could we do? Well, first of all, what you're doing, understanding kids from the inside of their own interior, you, yeah. know, you know, here's here's the integral again. Ken's saying flatland took us away from interiors. What do children need? People that are interested in their interiors and communicating to them what, what's going on with them in their interiors? Four months of age, what does an infant need? You need a kid that's pr- a parent that's present, that's contingent and congruent, and that's marked, meaning, oh, you're happy, you're sad, like that kind of stuff. Letting the kid know, feel known, accepted, and protected. That dynamic, the kid being known, accepted, and protected, and the parent being present congruent and marked in that fashion creates securely attached kids which sets up that that type of that kid's type to be more secure okay so on every level treating the kid with respect but understanding their interior is going to be different from ours that's what does it and also with children let me see it at almost any age but especially younger children there's times when they can relate like this and there's times that they need a boundary Okay, that's just all there is to it. Now, this is also true for grownups. You can relate or you have to handle them. <laughs> but, and, and, you know, I can't walk away from my kid like I can walk away from a grownup who's acting badly. So it's my kid. If I can't, like, talk it out, I have to set a boundary. And I have to set it firmly and kindly. 
And then I need to not blame the kid for making me set a boundary. And then when the kid shifts over into a more pro-social mode, I need to be able to approve of them and love them. This is very difficult if the kid, for instance, has problems that are like the problems I had when I was a child or I had when I was traumatized. If I was sexually abused, for Because instance, you, you get triggered, because you lose yourself. Yeah, I get triggered, I lose myself. Okay. And, and so how do you deal with that? Well, as Ken says, the answer is to wake up. But if we have a culture that normalizes the waking up process at every age, which is what we in Integral keep promoting and projecting, what that does is it creates open systems, raising children or having grandchildren, that kind of stuff, where we're, all, we're doing the best we can. We're always receiving new input about how to make everybody healthier and happier. Um, the people that are listening to this podcast, almost by definition, you're seekers who want to keep growing the rest of your life. That is setting you up to be a healthier version of your type. And when you're relating with children and being aware of their interiors or adolescents or young adults, to support them having a lifetime of growth also. And that becomes an assumed quality of the environment, of the inner subjectivity. It's not something we have to decide. It's just something that we live. What if kids make you kind of nervous? Yeah, they, yeah, no. they do. Uh, <laughs> no, I, 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 I'm personally not, the, you know, the, the, you know, called to that in a certain way. But I'm noticing a couple of my friends who have really, you know, so-called adopted these kids whose parents are working and overworked and. Boy, it's really satisfying to them, and it's really, really helpful to the kid. Yes, and I'm happy to. I I donated a computer. <laughs> yes, so you that, did that's your how, part. That's how a five helps, and I think about it. That helps. <laughs> that helps. You know, the so, worst sessions that I've ever had. I mean, the most painful for me personally have been sessions where an eight or nine year old has hijacked a session. Oh boy. Okay, so they're too big to be contained physically like a four-year-old. Right. Okay, they're, they're, too, they're too young to be related to. You know, they put up their barrier and start acting badly, and okay, session is hijacked. You know, they have a perfect barrier. And so when that happens, I go, okay, so much for family therapy. You know, I got to work with the parents to be able to adjust the, the family culture so that this kid can develop to the point where they don't do that anymore. Right. This has been my worst favorite. Yeah, I, I imagine you've had a, your share of that. Having <laughs> what fifty thousand private therapy sessions? Is I right there? It's sixty-five thousand. Jesus! Wow. Yeah, yeah, it's a lot. So you've seen you've seen all this up close and personal. Yeah, I have. I've I, I nobody's seen it all. Um, one thing that one thing that stands out to me about types is that every single person is a unique type of person that draws from the other systems. And that, and that it really does matter, you know, whether someone says, okay, I want to be a healthier version of myself. And again and again and again, as a therapist, I've had to help people go back to previous episodes of trauma, of neglect and, and, and abuse and so on. And, and I, I'm, I'm always really happy when someone comes in who's pregnant or has a little kid because I let them know, okay, we want to optimize this child's development and there's a lot of things you need to know and I'm going to tell you. And, and, and some people listen and will practice that stuff. And, you know, it's, a couple came in, a couple got pregnant, okay? This is, a, this is a fun story. Okay, there's this couple that came in and she was trying to convince me what a horrible partner she was. Oh, yeah, I want to go fuck other guys. I'm this, I'm that, you know. I'm, you know, I'm a terrible person. I go, you know, no, you're not. I could tell she, she's a brilliant, solid woman. And she's falling in love with this guy. <laughs> okay, so I said, I like her already. Yeah, I said, so first of all, all this stuff's bullshit. You know, I see that you're a solid, competent person. You're falling in love with a good guy. Okay, so, you know, I, more power to you. So then I said, yeah, yeah, no, no, I'm not. So they came back and they said, well, actually, now we're monogamously committed, but I'm pregnant. I go, okay. So I told him, you know, so this is what you need to do to attune your baby. When your baby's eight or nine months old, come in and visit me. I'll teach you about how to go through, you know, the next level of development with them, the play period from 10 to 17 months. Okay, so they showed up last week with their eight-month-old boy. Okay, this was a secure, happy little eight-month-old baby, oh. Jeff. 
How sweet is that? Uh, crawled around in my office, tried to eat my cords and stuff. That's okay. <laughs> you know, at eight months, they're still slow enough. You can stay ahead of them. You know, forget about it. When you could spray that stuff that they do for dogs on those cords. Probably do the trick. <laughs> See, there you go. <laughs> They're not dogs. <laughs> you don't spray this. <laughs> all right, all right. That's the best chemical. I'm sure, I'm sure you did the right thing. <laughs> anyway, this adorable baby. And I went, okay. So the first eight months now have been taken care of. He's secure. They're dialed in. Now they're set up for the next year. You know, okay. So there's a lot of problems that Fabulous. Can- could have had who didn't have yeah okay yeah. and they were appropriately working at being better with each other because as i told them and as they knew your relationship with each other is part of the container of your child in america people don't realize that you need to take care of your friendship and your love affair that's a big deal and if you're mm-hmm. not get somebody get help from somebody like me okay mm-hmm. and then and take care of it your child needs that more than giving him another violin lesson now, that's where the, the child-centric things start screwing up kids' development. You know, they're service receivers, and parents are service providers rather than children are citizens of a family. Oh, citizens have wow. responsibilities. Yes. You know, citizens have rights and responsibilities, and in that family, in that culture of that family, we're all growing, and we all have something we're working on, and we all have our authority and our responsibility. Okay, so that's a different different consciousness than parents or service providers. I got to focus everything on the kid. No, I need to focus on our culture and it's got to be a healthy culture. And that means me as well as the child and me and my husband or wife as well as the child and we in our larger culture as well as the child. Well, and I love that idea that they're citizens too and they have responsibilities yeah. appropriate to their age, all, all that good stuff. But that's, sure. that really is different. It is. Than, you know, I have no regrets about not having kids because I would have been the worst kind of service provider. <laughs> I mean, I I just I just I, I don't want I just want to give them whatever they want so that they you know, I don't want to. It's like my parenting strategy as a dog owner. <laughs> it's simple. I I tr- I try to see to it that they never have an unpleasant moment. <laughs> That's it. That's my sort of. Touchstone. So yeah, so yeah, it would have been hard for you to allow them whatever suffering. That was hard for me as a parent. I'll bet. You know, when my kids had that's got to be tough. When they were going through develop age development suffering, it was hard for me to take a deep breath and allow them to go through it. It's still to this day, it is, yeah. and, and support them and go, yeah, and and development is hard for, under the best of circumstances, and. You know, part of understanding what type of person I am is there's, I have strengths and weaknesses. And part of my job is to work on um, honoring my strengths and developing in the area of my weakness. And if I grew up in a culture where that was standard, it's a lot easier for me to, one, accept whatever type I am. You know, I'm a fear type. I grew up in a culture where being afraid was shameful. Okay, so it's just, I grew up in it with endogenous shame up to yin-yang. And so, Me of too. course, yeah, there you go. And so, yeah. uh, and, and, type. and so I became uh, a, a counterphobic six. And so I would take stupid risks. And I was just lucky that I'm alive. Okay. But, yeah. you know, if I was raising that. I, I was a counterphobic five. I would think about taking <laughs> unnecessary risks. There you go. <laughs> well, I, I, wish I, I wish my five wing would have been stronger then. I wish that would have worked for me, particularly in my late adolescence. So anyway, um, the, the, now, one thing about the integral age that's coming is we are at a place where the information and the data and the wisdom is really available. Isn't that something? I mean, I mean, just you could almost feel the changes happening in real time uh, yeah. in the way we think about all sorts of things. Uh, but this, uh, I mean, I feel like I'm learning about raising children. I feel like I learned a lot about it in the last hour. I mean, really. I mean, and that's, that's just, it's just magnificent. Yeah, I, I, I am so interested in the fact that we love having our minds changed. That, that's a developmental milestone. I've talked about oh, it before. Yes. Yeah. I didn't used to like my mind changed because I was, I was all fixed mindset invested in knowing stuff and my, my way being the best way. Well, I've now realized that not, nothing that I do is the best way. Yes. 
Exactly. I mean, I sometimes joke when I talk about typologies, I sometimes joke that, I mean, what typologies, first of all, taught me that I was wrong when I thought that everybody was a defective version of me. Yeah, right. Which is what I thought for the first 20 plus years of my life. And then I realized, wait a second, no, they have a different antenna. They see, they process. Wow. And then it becomes like, wow. Types. And then you, this and then revelation you get the, of types. And that is the you know gift of that. Yeah. Uh, that you start appreciating all these people who you thought were conspiring to annoy you. You know? Yes. They're not. They're just. They're different. not. They're, they're just being themselves. And then, you know, ultimately you get to the and I, one of my favorite quotes from um, Emerson, where he says that ultimately every church has a congregation of one. Uh, and that each of us, the, you know, we, we could find these constellations and we can see these patterns. But in the final analysis, we're all just unique. Yes. And. Uh, you know, A.H. Almas wrote a book about the Enneagram called Facets of Unity. And I love A.H. Almas. Who doesn't love A.H. Almas? I don't know. And so his hypothesis is his position in Facets of Unity is that we lose our connection with spirit. And so different people then, that creates a hole. You know, we feel an emptiness in that. And so we essentially try to fill up that hole with our personality. Hmm. And so his belief about the Enneagram is that our personalities were created with the progressive distortions that we came up with to try to fill that hole. And that, and that his approach to that was, what is the basic connection with spirit that we've lost? Let's make that connection. Hmm. Now, my belief is that that's how it works, that we all have a basic, you know, Patricia Albert calls it the origination point. And in the, in the, in the East, they called it uh, Atman, okay? Um, that there's this little point, and that point coming up through our incarn- incarnation creates the unique person that we are. Now, that point gets distorted and corrupted by abuse and neglect and trauma. And so part of our job is to recognize that and to prevent that if possible and to heal it when it happens. And part of that is our own desire to grow as a seeker. So we want to simultaneously work on these practices and things to grow and expand and so on. While when the trauma and the other stuff shows up, you know, we address it and heal it while taking a stand for, let's, 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 let's create a culture where as little of that is inflicted on kids as possible. You know, everybody's going to get some. But, you know, what if that 28% and, you know, a third of kids are hit to the extent that they're left bruises by a parent? What if that was 5%? You know, what if that 20% molested got down to 2%? You know, what if that one in eight kids who've seen their mother struck or beaten up turned into one in 100 kids? Mm -hmm. Okay, well, that would be great. We would have hundreds of billions of dollars more tax income We'd have hundreds of billion dollars less incarceration and mental health stuff, and we'd have a lot happier, healthier people. Yeah. But it's a wicked problem because we can't just work on it. For, you know, we have to work on it with food. You know, the food industry is not supporting this. You cannot feed kids uh, uh, high glycemic index sugar and expect them to feel good in their bodies. They don't feel good in their bodies. Or put them in environments where they don't get to exercise or they don't get to dance or they don't get to sing or they don't get to create art. They don't get to play. Yeah. I remember getting a, a pillowcase full of candy on Halloween. Oh, my God. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know how I'm still alive. <laughs> I mean, and, and actually, if I may, Keith, because we're getting in the end of time here, yeah. uh, shift it to, you know, really quickly to those of us for whom that ship has sailed and we've already got all, all of our traumas and it's, you know, whatever. I just want to say that. The two-part series that you and I did on healing trauma is one of the most popular things on my site, thedailyevolver.com. So if you're interested in healing the traumas, which is the other side of the street, because, you know, we can't uncook that egg for some, you know, some of us, uh, those are great. Oh, yeah, I love that. Those part of the shrink and the pundit on dailyevolver.com. Check it out, people. And also, in the next year, I'm going to have a book called Trauma into Transcendence, an integral approach to understanding and healing trauma that will take a lot of the things we discussed and expand them um, because it's a big deal. And right we, on. 
And we in Integral look at things from multiple perspectives. And more perspectives you look at stuff, the, the, the wider your view and the more opportunities and choices you have. And, and that grows us. Just that process itself grows our consciousness. Yes, it does, indeed. And thank you so much for carrying that torch, man. I'm carrying the torch. You are. I appreciate it. Well, I appreciate you. I appreciate us having these conversations and putting this stuff out into the world. Putting it out there. So, yeah, thanks, everybody, for listening. Uh, If you are interested in giving us some feedback, we love hearing it. Uh, I'm Jeff at DailyEvolver.com. Pretty simple. Keith, you are... Well, you can email me at Keith at drkeithwit.com. Um, you know, you go on my website, uh, drkeithwit.com, and you can, uh, you know, leave a question or a message or in some, something. Um, and, you know, check out my books. You know, I, going back to uh, uh, the current thing, I, I kind of dismissed my previous work often. So I went back and started really waking up, which was my book on integral informed psychotherapy and i was surprised how much i agreed with everything (laughs) well surprised how much you learned yeah this is a good book you know so it's even though i have a better understanding than i did when i wrote that book i had a pretty good understanding when i wrote that book i mean so you know there there is such a thing as you know moving forward so you go that's right and you you really have you know so mapped out the territory of integral psychology and you know i mean you will have a Marble bust in the integral <laughs> pantheon. <laughs> Woohoo! <laughs> so there. Okay, everybody. Thanks again for listening to the Shrink and the Pundit and the Daily Evolver. And we'll we'll see you next time. Much love to everybody. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.